Good morning. Uh, today's scripture is Genesis 41, 37 through 57, page 35 of the Pew Bible. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it in Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him a marriage, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went over, went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was thirty years old when he entered the service of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years of the earth, the years the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put food in, all, in, food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of An, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to, began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we are continuing our study in Genesis chapter 41 which is the story of Joseph's incredible rescue from prison and his rise to the second highest position in all of Egypt. You could say, as the title of this sermon does, that Joseph goes from pit to prime minister. And all of this happens at once. It's very quickly how it happens. You might say, that his was a meteoric rise. And that is all the more appropriate if you, if that image of a meteor, you know, helps to remind you of Jacob or Joseph's second dream, wherein heavenly bodies like the sun and the moon and the stars bowed down to him. It's good to keep that image in mind because this chapter is full of evidence not so much that um, Joseph's dreams are coming true, but that God's promises are in the process of being fulfilled. That's what this chapter highlights, the promises of God beginning to be fulfilled. Now, I'm guessing that some, I, I think that I know you well enough by now that I'm guessing that some of you are going to quarrel with my choice of the term prime minister. Uh, why not president, you wonder? Come on, pastor, you're in the United States now. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that this is just one more example of my Canadian snobbery, you know, right up there with my insistence that that area over there is pronounced foyer. Well, you can, you can mock me all you want. I'll just uh, go back to my family doctor 
and get my feelings checked for free. <laughs> no, prime minister is, is more appropriate for a couple of reasons. First, because the parliamentary system more closely parallels, I think, what was going on in Egypt at that time. Yes, Joseph is over all the land, as we'll see. His power is almost boundless. But technically, there is someone still who is higher in the pecking order, Pharaoh. Just like the prime minister might be the functional head over a country, but he still answers to her royal highness, Queen Elizabeth. And uh, long live the queen. She celebrates today uh, 70 years in power. Um, but I digress. Besides that, prime minister is just a better term for a leader. I hope you can give me that. President carries connotations of like raw power and authority. It sounds too executive to me, too controlling. Minister, on the other hand, I think better communicates what the role of government is supposed to be, which is a role of servant. A, the ruler is God's servant for your good, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 13. And just get a vision for that. I mean, can you even imagine government officials who understand that their primary calling is to minister to the people of the country, citizens, rather than to be like monomaniacal. That would be wonderful. Well, in God's kingdom, that's exactly what we're called to be, is ministers. And I know when you hear that word, you, you just automatically think of someone like, like me, you know, a capital M, minister the professional class. But the truth of the matter is that we are all called to this task. We're all to be ministers. Actually, people in my position, if you want to put it that way, are called to equip you, the saints, for the work of the ministry. In the New Testament, it's, it's mostly regular church folk like Tychicus or Epaphras who are called ministers and fellow servants. And by the way, this is what is desperately needed in our day, is ministers. What the world needs now is not love, sweet love, you know, in the syrupy, sentimental sort of a way, but love in the servant kind of a way. We need men and women who have a, a big view of God to testify to the Lord with their lips and with their lives, people who are poured out in service to God and to their neighbor. That's exactly what the world needs, and that's what we've been called to. That's the ministry that we've all been called to. And one of the narrator's purposes here in this chapter is to hold up Joseph as a, as a model minister, if you will. He's, he's the prime example of what it looks like to live for the Lord in the midst of the world. This is, this is not the author's ultimate purpose, mind you, and we'll come to that ultimate purpose in due course. But looking at Joseph as a model minister, I think will certainly pave the way to that ultimate purpose. Here, then, are four marks of a minister that emerge from the latter half of Genesis chapter 41. Four marks of a minister from this last portion of Genesis 41. And the first is that he or she is filled. Filled. We pick up where we left off which was that after interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, which you'll recall predicted a, a bumper crop for seven years, followed by seven years of famine, Joseph was bold to immediately um, propose a plan 
for dealing with the crisis. This plan, you'll remember, was dependent on Pharaoh finding a qualified leader. As Joseph lays out in verse 33, this would, this would have to be a discerning and wise man. Well, when we come to our passage this morning, we discover that Pharaoh loves what he hears. This, this proposal sounds exactly right in his ears and in the ears of his servants, his advisors. Obviously, he's not crazy about the famine part of all of this, but he is hopeful that given all of this advanced notice, thanks to the revelation of God, the, the plan that Joseph lays out is going to avert whatever disaster might have befallen. The tricky part of this whole plan is, where are they going to find discerning and wise men? Pharaoh asks his advisors, do we, do we have anyone that actually fits that description? And actually what he says here is more of a rhetorical question. Uh, and, and the assumed answer is, not a chance. Like, this is something we don't have. Wise and discerning men. Remember, Pharaoh has already summoned all of the wise men, all of the discerning men from all over Egypt. They're assembled. They may even be right there still in the gallery watching all of this unfold. But to a man, they've demonstrated themselves to be the opposite of wise and discerning. This, is, this was their moment. This is, this, is, this is what they do for a living. And they're all called, and Pharaoh tells them his dreams, and they're all like, blah, blah, blah. you know, they, these guys make uh, Larry, Curly, and Moe look like Rhodes Scholars. There's not one wise and discerning man to be found. So after Pharaoh scans the room and consults his servant, his eyes return to that 30-year-old Hebrew man that's standing right there in front of him. And he recognizes him as being the wisest and the most discerning man in the country. What's interesting, and this is what I want you to observe, is why? Why, is, why does Pharaoh believe that Joseph is the wisest, most discerning man in the country? Here's what Pharaoh understands, verse 39. He understands that God has shown Joseph these things. He understands that in this man who's standing before him is the spirit of God. This fellow is filled, in other words. Do, do you see how Pharaoh himself is undergoing something of a major transformation in this chapter, it's not just Joseph. It's, it's Pharaoh. He, Pharaoh goes from someone who was thought of as a god himself, and he probably considered himself to be something close to deity. Now he's someone who is recognizing the power and the presence of the one true and living God. And this recognition is in no small part to the coaching that Joseph has given to him all along, especially in verse 16. Remember that? When Pharaoh says, you know, rumor has it that you're the guy that does this. And Joseph falls over himself to say, it's not me, not me at all, to interpret your dreams. That is 100% God. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh's picking up what Joseph's putting down, and Pharaoh's now understanding that wi the wisdom and discernment that is clearly on display uh, from this young Hebrew man can only be attributed to the Spirit of God that is in him. And that's exactly what Egypt, Egypt needs right now for their looming crisis. They need a wise and discerning spirit-filled minister. And friends, that is precisely what our world needs today. Men and women, boys and girls who are filled with the Holy Spirit. People who speak and act out of the truth and the wisdom that comes from above, not, not from below. 
We need people like Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Esther and David and Abigail and John the Baptist and the apostles. Normal people, fishermen, unschooled, ordinary men, but astonishingly wise and bold and speaking with an unusual authority. This is what the world recognized in, in these people. That this, what we need are the kinds of things that would lead an observer to the inescapable conclusion that the only explanation for these people and for the things that they're saying and for the things that they're doing, the lives that they're leading, the only explanation is that these are people that have been with Jesus. These are people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we often talk about how, how Christians, because of their allegiance and, and their testimony and their character and their behavior, how Christians ought to expect persecution as we make our way through a hostile world. We, we talk about suffering and persecution a lot. And we do so because it's, it's a thing. You know, that's definitely a thing. But there's another side of things that we would do well, I think, to mention from time to time, which is that the world ought to find spirit-filled Christians to be incredibly winsome and attractive. We ought to be an aroma of life to a dying world. We, we ought to be the flavor of salt to a bland generation. And do you see how Pharaoh was drawn to Joseph? Again, this is not because he's handsome or because he's got a winning personality or, you know, the it factor or whatever you want to say. It was simply, he t he tell, Pharaoh tells you what he's seeing in Joseph. It's simply because he was filled and, you know, when, when it comes to getting a job or a position, young people, um, adults will sometimes tell you, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that is certainly true in the case of Joseph. It was because of his relationship with God that Pharaoh puts him in charge of everything. He, he was set over uh, Pharaoh's house. He set over the whole land of Egypt. And it's precisely because he, knew, he knows God. It's because he's filled with the Spirit of God. And what we have in verses 42 to 44 are details concerning how it was that Pharaoh set Joseph over all of the land of Egypt. So we see symbols and we hear statements of his formal induction, if you will, into the role of prime minister. First, notice that Pharaoh gives Joseph his signet ring. It's, it's like a big, it, it, well, it's like a big Super Bowl ring, which I, I'm realizing now is a terrible illustration to give you because no one in this whole area has ever seen a Super Bowl ring. Anyway, uh, a signet ring is a, a big ring that doubles as a stamp. And it had uh, Pharaoh's John Hancock etched into it so that so that when it was pressed into hot wax the document or work order or check or whatever was considered officially authorized it was as if pharaoh himself was signing it pharaoh in giving joseph this ring pharaoh is essentially giving joseph a blank check to do whatever he felt best on pharaoh's behalf but then there's even more bling. I look uh, here that Pharaoh also gives him a gold chain around his neck. Very costly um, piece of jewelry that signifies great wealth and power. This is the perfect accessory to go, not just with the ring, but with the very fine linen garments that he was now clothed in. Also, the text says that he was made to ride in the second chariot which I guess is what you might call ground force two. Everywhere Joseph goes, people hit their knees 
instinctively. And if they don't do it instinctively, the government officials who would go out before this entourage would remind them of proper protocol and they would call out ahead of him saying, bow the knee. Now, there's a couple of really interesting clues here. Clues that I, d I don't want you to miss, so I want to just mention them. New linen garments? Have you noticed that clothes keep popping up in this story? First, you've got the amazing Technicolor dream coat that his father gives to him. Then you'll recall that coat was destroyed in order to frame some wild animal for Joseph's uh, death. And then in Potiphar's house, Joseph again loses his garments and he's falsely accused and he gets thrown into prison where he gets an, an orange jumpsuit, I guess. And then he, when he appears before Pharaoh, he, he has, that necessitates a change of clothes. So there's that. But now, being inducted into the highest position in the land, second only to Pharaoh, means that Joseph once again is given a very fine robe to wear. I just, I don't think that's coincidence. I don't think that the narrator is just throwing away these lines here. Yes, these, this is something that Pharaoh has done. But you can't help but see that the Lord is totally in this. And then when you see Joseph's chariot riding down the streets of Egypt and you see almost like the waves part for him, a mass of humanity that's just hitting their knees, bowing in his presence, what are you seeing there? You're seeing his dreams and behind those dreams God's promises beginning to be fulfilled. God is definitely in this. God is most certainly at work. And more than this, God's spirit is evident in Joseph's life. And may the same thing be said of us, brothers and sisters. May it be said of us that we are ministers who are first and foremost filled that there's no other explanation for our lives, for our speech, for our conduct, that, than that we have been with Jesus and that we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Secondly, ministers are faithful. They're faithful. In verses 46 and following, we see immediately, Joseph just right away, set upon the work that is before him. During the seven plentiful years, he, he implements his plan, you know, to store 20% of this bumper crop and to, to save it for the lean years. And he does so by erecting a, a ton of those steel grain bins, you know, which must have lined the cities like A students line the front rows of classrooms, uh, a bunch of suck-ups. This is part of the beauty of Joseph's plan. You know, it's, it's, it's local. His is a decentralized government, which is how it's supposed to be. By storing and then later by distributing grain that is harvested and stored close to the the source, you know, the fields that it comes from, what Joseph's doing is minimizing transport. He's maximizing his profits and his supply. And despite uh, seven future years of famine, there's not going to be any supply chain issues with this system uh, because of the wisdom and the discernment of this spirit-filled man. The point is, Joseph is faithful as any minister must be. And I don't just mean that he's a hard worker, although I do mean that he's a hard worker. He's diligent. And, and that's a model for us. There is no room for laziness or sloth in the kingdom of God. 
But I don't just mean, when I say that he's faithful, I don't just mean that he's a hard worker. By faithful, I mean that he is eager to deploy his wisdom and discernment for the good of others and for the glory of God. He, you can tell he's excited about this plan, not, not because, you know, it's finally given him some purpose in life and it's getting him out of prison. No, Joseph is eager about this plan and he's diligent to implement this plan because he knows that it is God's mechanism for displaying his glory and salvation. Faithfulness means an eagerness to deploy the wisdom and discernment that you've received from God in order to serve him and other people. Joseph's been given huge responsibility by Pharaoh, but ultimately he's been given this responsibility by the Lord. And so faithfulness means fulfilling that God-given responsibility. And that's been the pattern throughout Joseph's life. Have you noticed that this is the third house that Joseph has been set over? First, it was the house of Potiphar. Then it was the prison house. Now it's the house of Pharaoh. And at every stage, Joseph has been faithful to what has been entrusted to him. And over the course of his lifetime, you can see that he's given greater and greater responsibilities. In him, I think we see an illustration of this kingdom principle, which is that he who is faithful in the little things, she who is faithful in the small things, will be faithful in much and will be given much more responsibility. I think that's a very important principle and one that, that we really need to be reminded of. It's a principle, I think, especially that you young people need to be reminded of, if I could single you out for a minute. You know, you millennials and Gen Zers or whatever they're calling you now, you're wonderful people. I love you with all my heart. But you're, by and large, a group of people who believe that you're entitled to management positions and a six-figure salary right out of college. Your, your generation doesn't have much patience for staying at something long-term and demonstrating your, your value over the course of many years, demonstrating it by faithfulness in increasingly higher responsibilities. I don't mean you specifically in this church, but I'm saying this is the, this is the generation that you are part of. This is, this is the culture that you're swimming in. This expectation that is totally unrealistic and totally contrary to biblical principles. And this is true spiritually speaking as well. I, I know that you young people have a desire to serve. You know, you want to be, you want to make a six-figure salary so that you can be a blessing and you can be generous. You want to do great things for the Lord. Some of you um, already maybe have aspirations of working on the mission field or being uh, an elder or a deacon. And all of that's wonderful. You're, you're desiring a good thing if you're desiring any of those things. The only issue is... If you think of these things as a sort of switch that you can just kind of turn on once you get older, you know, once you turn 30 like Joseph, then you can really do some important things for the Lord. Let me tell you something. You can do important things for the Lord right now. You can, you can serve him by serving others right now, even today. And it might seem so insignificant to you as to not even be worth your effort. You know, you're saving up your, your effort for the big things, the important things that you can do later. It might seem so insignificant to you, like, I don't know, carrying an elderly person's plate to their table 
or getting them something to drink or vacuuming the carpet after a fellowship meal or shoveling your neighbor's sidewalk or brushing off their car. But here's what I predict. If you're faithful in these so-called little things, the master will set you over much. He'll give you increasingly larger responsibilities if you're faithful. And I'm not just speaking to the young people anymore. I'm exhorting all of us along these lines. All of us are called to be ministers. All of us are called to be faithful. And we can be faithful no matter what our gifting is. You can be faithful. Uh, speaking to a bunch of future capital M ministers, one of one of the early professors at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, this is in the late 1800s, said something to the effect of, not, of all, not all of you can be great or brilliant, but all of you can be reliable. Every one of you can be faithful. And that is true, isn't it? We, we, not all of us are going to be great or um, brilliant, that, by definition, that's not true. That's not how averages work. But every single one of us can be faithful, men and women, boys and girls, in the tasks that God has given us to do. So yes, a minister is to be faithful, reliable, hardworking, eager to deploy his or her God-given wisdom and discernment for the good of others and for the glory of Christ. But by faithful... I also mean full of faith. That might seem like a pretty basic point, not even worth calling out, but think about even what the word means. Faithful means that you're full of faith. And faith, you know, is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things that are not yet seen, which in Joseph's case would be something like seven years of famine. Okay, in those seven years of abundance, I suppose that Joseph looked an awful lot like Noah, his forebear, who came earlier in Genesis. So you, you, you can picture this. Maybe you have pictured this. Noah is building a boat, and he's doing so when there's not even a drop of water falling from the sky. Joseph is building silos, when there is a ton of rain. And in both cases, the neighbors are walking by, they're shaking their heads, they're, they're mocking them. They're thinking that they're, you know, a few fries short of a Happy Meal. They're saying things like, Joseph, are you crazy? We're, we're swimming in grain. There's more grain in Egypt than there are sand, grains of sand in the sea. You can't even measure how much grain we have anymore. And here you are talking about a famine? <laughs> and this is exactly what every faith-filled minister will have to endure. Mockery, laughter, unbelief. Pfft, where is the evidence of his coming? Where is the promise of his return? Sin? Pfft, yeah, right. Judgment? Ha! And what, what are we called to in the midst of all that? We're called to be faithful ministers of the gospel. We're called to love people, to bless them, even bless our enemies who are insulting us and persecuting us. We're called to seek their salvation, even if their desperate need for salvation isn't even on their radar. So faithful means to walk by faith and not by sight. But it also means to hold on to the faith, the faith of the fathers. And what we see in this chapter is Joseph being assimilated into Egyptian culture. You know, uh, Pharaoh not only gives him Egyptian jewelry and Egyptian clothing and Egyptian model chariot, he also gives him an Egyptian name. Henceforth in Egypt, Joseph is to be called, look at verse 45, 
Zaphanath Paneah, which means something like God speaks and lives, which is just one more piece of evidence that Pharaoh is really starting to get this. He's starting to acknowledge the one true and living God and his presence with Joseph. That's an Egyptian name that's an expression of Hebrew faith, but it's an Egyptian name nonetheless. And then Pharaoh also gives Joseph an Egyptian wife, a young lady by the name of Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, who's a priest at On. And this is a young woman with high status, uh, coming from a high-ranking Egyptian family. And ordinarily, you know this by now, that in Genesis, it's frowned upon for Hebrew men, men of the promise, to be married to pagans, to be yoked together with these unbelievers. But the narrator here, in this case, doesn't really put this in a negative light. And I think the reason for that is, like, what, what choice did Joseph have in all of this? This is, this is part of his compensation package, okay? This is a gift given to him by Pharaoh. The, the point is that, that Joseph is thoroughly immersed in pagan Egyptian culture. And the question is, will he assimilate? Will he do what all of his forebears before him have done, which is whenever they get mixed up with the Canaanites to become more and more like the Canaanites? We could ask, will, will, uh, will Joseph begin to talk like an Egyptian and walk like an Egyptian? And the answer to all of those questions is a resounding no. He holds fast to the faith in the midst of the world. And um, key evidence for this is seen in the birth of, of his two boys and the names that he gives them. He gives them Hebrew names, Manasseh and Ephraim. And we'll take a closer look at these names in just a second. But I, I at this point, I, do, I want you to just see the big picture that surrounded by all of this pagan culture, Joseph is holding firm to, he, he's seeking to pass down to the next generation the faith of his fathers. And that's what it means, that's part of what it means to be faithful. This is what every one of us are called to. We're called to be faithful ministers, or as Paul says in Philippians 2, to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, holding fast to the word of Christ. God, help us to be faithful. Help us not to compromise in the midst of a, a dark and twisted world. May we be faithful to hold fast and firmly to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. A minister must also be in the third place, forgetful, forgetful. And I'm getting this from the, the meaning of the name that Joseph gives to his firstborn son, Manasseh. He explains his uh, rationale in verse 51. God has made me forget all of my hardship and all my father's house. And you've got to be careful not to miss understand that or misinterpret that okay it looks like two separate things there and it looks like joseph has forgotten his family and his father as, as if to say like forget them no what th this phrase is set up so that these two parts of it actually just mean the same thing what he's forgotten is his hardship in his father's house to begin with so Joseph's not canceling his family. He's not cutting them off. He's not, you know, putting an end to their toxicity. No, he is, he's recognizing that his hardship, his affliction, his adversity began in his father's house, and it's only increased from this point. What Joseph has been made to forget by the grace of God, by the joy of having a one of his own sons. And more broadly, what, what Joseph has been made to forget by the favor that he enjoys in Egypt 
or all of the difficult years that have gone before, beginning with the cruelty that he suffered at the hands of his brothers and right up to the injustice that he experienced from being falsely accused and left in prison for over a decade. Joseph is testifying to, to the grace of God, which has been so lavished on him that all of the horrible stuff that happened to him in the past is a distant memory. That it's, it's completely overshadowed now by all of God's goodness to him. And this is certainly a word for us as we seek to minister in the 21st century where every single one of us, it seems to me, can point to things in our past that have messed us up hardships that we've endured, abuses that we've suffered, you know, terrible ways that we've been raised, in, injustice that we've experienced. The, the, I think that's always happened. The difference is that in our generation is, is that bizarrely, there, there is cachet in our corruption. You know, there, there, these days there is a lot of value in victimhood. To have suffered somehow is a status symbol now. And, and we, you know, people find their whole identity in their mistreatment. And so there, there's a real heightened tendency or temptation to cling to the past no matter how painful it is. And it has stalled so many people out. By, by living in the past and reliving all of that affliction and horror. But I want you to understand that the kingdom has us looking forward, not backwards. As Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus, of God in Christ Jesus. Speaking of goal, have you thought lately about the glory that is in store for us? It, it would do your heart well to, to consider the inheritance that is yours and that is coming when Jesus Christ returns. Even if it is the case that you're never brought out of the pit that you're currently in, that you continue to suffer and endure hardship in this life, have you considered that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us on that great day in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to be so overshadowed with the goodness and the glory of Christ that it'll make us forget all of our trouble. Such is the overwhelming grace of God that it completely overshadows the shadows. Not only is his grace greater than all of our sins, but it's greater than all of other people's sins against us. And I want you to hear me correctly. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not minimizing all of the terrible things that have happened to you in your past. I'm simply seeking to maximize the goodness of God that makes us forgetful, as all good ministers must be. But ministers must also be, fourthly, fruitful. Fruitful. And this truth is found in the name that Joseph gives to his second son, Ephraim. It means something like, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, I don't have enough time to uh, give this point adequate treatment, but fortunately our friend Stacy has written an excellent meditation on this portion of this passage on Ephraim's name, and you can find that at the Grace Notes uh, blog on our website, and I hardly commend that to you. Let me just whet your appetite for it a tiny bit. By fruitful... Joseph obviously has in mind his two sons. The fact that his family is expanding. The fact that he is carrying out the mandate of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to be fruitful 
He's multiplying. But more importantly, connect the dots with what's happening more recently. His, the fruitfulness of his family is further testimony that the Lord is fulfilling all of his promises. Promises that he made first to Abraham, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. To give them a multitude of descendants. To make them into a great nation. Speaking of sand in the sea, that's what um, Abraham's descendants were going to be likened to. And Ephraim and Manasseh, now born to Joseph, are in fact going to be two of the half-tribes in Israel. So this is squarely in the fulfillment of God's promises. This is what it means to be fruitful. But more broadly, Joseph's fruitfulness is seen in his status. His, his role, his prosperity in Egypt, the land of his affliction. That's what he calls it. And that's the, that's the headline, for, that's the highlight from Stacy's blog post, that this fruitfulness occurs in the land of affliction, right there in the midst of it. And Vodi Bauckham, I think, is also helpful on this point. He, he, he points out that the world is our land of affliction. Okay, and this is where fruitfulness comes from. Not, some, not from some, um, if, if we think that we can somehow mystically escape this world and then we can be fruitful, or if we can just get out from under our, our affliction, our difficulties, then we could really do some great things for the kingdom. No, fruitfulness comes in the land of affliction. We, like Joseph, as we make our way through this world, we're like him in that we're foreigners. We're aliens and strangers. But God causes us to bear fruit right in the middle of it. And what we have in verse 57 is an extraordinary statement of Joseph's fruitfulness. And how, out of that fruitfulness, Joseph is able to minister to the world. It says, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. What a picture that is. All the earth streaming to Joseph because they knew that he had the goods to satisfy their hunger. And I wonder, does that describe you, fellow minister? Do people know that you have the words of eternal life? Do people come to you being drawn by your fruitfulness? Do they come eager to have the same kind of bread that you've been feeding on? And this leads us to a fifth point. Pulled a fast one on you there. And if if you want to add a fifth, you can. And if you want to add a, a heading to this, you can call it a finger. This is what faithful ministers ought to be, our fingers. And picture, if you've ever been to a, a baseball game or a football game or something, that big foam finger that people wear. And I think it's supposed to be like number one or whatever. But picture that, except... Picture that finger, that index finger pointing to the Savior. That's what we're called to be as ministers. Fingers towards the prime minister. Because actually, Joseph is not the, in the ultimate sense, the prime minister. He's just a, a model minister. But Joseph would be quick to... I think we know him by now. He'd say, not, not me. He'd be, he'd be quick to point you to the prime minister, the one who models all of these things perfectly, even the Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved son in whom God the Father was well pleased, who when he began to minister on the earth and when he came up, from the water at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. This is a, this is a man who is tr totally filled with the Spirit. In Jesus Christ, we have someone who is totally faithful, always faithful, 
who always did the will of his father. And at the end of his ministry, he could say, I have accomplished the work that you have given to me. In Jesus, we have one who is forgetful, if we could put it that way. He, yes, he was despised and rejected and afflicted, and he endured all sorts of insults and persecution, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame. Do you remember his mother said this about him? It seems like another throwaway line, but then when you read that this is what Pharaoh says about Joseph in Genesis 41, it kind of makes, makes us curious, at least, to wonder if there's a connection when his mother says to the people at the wedding concerning the water and the wine, do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus, who will say, I am the bread of life. I, all the nations are going to come to Jesus. They're going to stream to him. They're going to recognize in Jesus their, their desperate need for, for bread. And not just bread that will make them hungry or, or drink that will make them thirsty the very next day. But in Jesus, they, they have bread that will satisfy eternally such that they never hunger again or or never thirst again this is what we have in the lord jesus christ who is the prime minister and and we we learn exactly what it looks like to love others and to serve others and to glorify god by what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for sinners like you and I. What act of service. He, he was meeting our needs even before we realized that we were starving and desperate. What a savior we have. And I trust that as we uh, make our way downstairs here in a few minutes, as we enjoy fellowship with one another, as we get to participate in communion, partake of symbols that represent the body and the blood of Christ, I, I trust that we will be able to just be re reminded of the fact that in Christ we have true bread that satisfies. Amen? Amen.